0: The cloud security market is super interesting right now. There's lots of subcategories. It's confusing where the boundaries are between them all. And it's incredibly fast moving. Things are changing all the time. In this episode, I chat with Liet Hyeon, the co-founder and CEO of Eureka Security. We talk about why she felt compelled to leave a big secure company and start Eureka. The first few steps she and her co-founder took to get going. Eureka's positioning in the cloud security market, and how thoughtfully they started their go-to-market motions. And finally, uh, what type of vacation Liat or husband and daughter like to go on. Don't go away. Welcome to the Sales Bluebird podcast where we help cybersecurity companies grow sales faster. I am longtime cybersecurity seller, leader, and now go to market consultant, Andrew Monahan, And our guest today is Liat Hyun, co founder and CEO at Eureka Security. Liat, welcome to Sales Bluebird.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm looking forward to this, Liat, because, well, for two main reasons. Uh, one is uh, Eureka is in a really interesting and much needed space, but it's very noisy. So I'm keen to learn and understand from you how Eureka's positioned and the things you've learned about how to do that. And the second thing is you've been in your history at a couple of big organizations, and then you went straight to a small one and co-founded a startup. So, you know, interesting kind of dynamic about making that decision to to switch over. And I'm sure there's a bunch of things that went into that. A quick break to say that this episode is sponsored by IT Harvest. With over 3,200 vendors in cybersecurity, it is hard to keep track of all the latest developments as well as research and analyze categories and subcategories within cybersecurity, which is where the IT Harvest cybersecurity platform comes in. Want to know which subcategories in cloud security are growing the fastest? You'll get it in a few clicks. Want to know and track everything about your main competitors and keep up with their hiring and news? Simple search to be done. Want to know the top 20 fastest-growing companies based out of Israel? Easy. Just a couple of clicks to get that. IT Harvest is the first and only research platform dedicated to cybersecurity. And it's run by Richard Steen, who has done it all in cybersecurity. From the VP of Research at Gartner, a CMO at a cybersecurity vendor, a lecturer on cybersecurity, advisor to startups, advisory board member at startups, and a main board member as well, the whole lot. Find out more by going to salesbluebird.com slash research. That's salesbluebird.com slash research. Now back to the episode. Well, let's talk about uh, the business side of this then. Um, I look at your LinkedIn resume here. You spent almost seven years in the IDF in, in Israel, and then almost six years at, at palo alto networks and then after six years there in product management you decided that what i was going to do was leave there and actually start a startup go find a startup so let's go back to that moment where were you who were you with what was their thinking that said you know what i'm going to leave the safe world of a big company with benefits and paychecks and things like that and and go and do a startup
1: yeah, so so as you as you uh, already understood li- leaving Pell to Networks wasn't wasn't an easy decision. Uh not from, you know, a work-life balance perspective or just benefits perspective, but also not from a professional perspective. It's it has been and it it's it's really uh still is a great company. Uh but for me it was more around building something new. Um and uh Pell has been great at taking products and kind of using that seed to grow something out of. And I kind of wanted to focus on that um, earlier stage. Um, but really what uh, what made me turn that corner was, was my co-founder, Asaf. Um, so Asaf and I have been working for 15 years now, even more than that, uh, working together for over 15 years. Um, and it was just kind of those, one of those uh, meetings where we were both Talking about maybe considering uh, leaving our current workplace for me, it was Peloton Networks for staff. It was Microsoft, um, and what what would it be uh, that we would we would do next? And throughout our fifteen years of working together in the IDF at Palo Networks, uh, we we used to kind of think about or, or uh, uh, make fun of us, you know, starting something together. How would that be like? And it kind of seemed like the right opportunity. Uh, we all also had a great space that we knew uh, we would be focusing on. So all those stars aligned really well from a personal perspective, from a professional perspective, and from a focus perspective. And that was just it. We just decided to, to take the look.
0: And did that happen over dinner? Was it uh, in your living room one day? What was the moment?
1: Um, so my guess is that, uh, I, to be honest, I, I don't remember. I don't know if it was just one point in time more than it was a process. Uh, So I think he kind of decided to leave Microsoft a couple of months uh, ahead uh, before that. Um, And it was like, will we, won't we, should we? Um, And it was just a chain of smaller decisions that kind of led to that. Um, In addition to the professional um, considerations uh, that I had in mind, um, it was also, you know, as big of a family decision as it was a personal or professional decision. Uh, We were just coming out of COVID as, as just, you know, just as... Uh, as the world <laughs> just coming out of COVID, uh, my husband was just finishing a very intense role. Um, he's still in the IDF and the Navy, so it was kind of you know what this is going to be it. Um, and I don't even remember. I I, it's, it's, I could probably find the WhatsApp text that that uh, that was the final call for that. But it was just a common this just this process uh, of conversations, both you know each of, each for each of us with their families, but also between the two of us. And my guess is that if I'll search through my WhatsApp history, I'll kind of find the text that says, "You know what? I'm in," or or, or vice versa. Um,
0: So then you're at that moment. What happens next? Do you start coding? Do you try and raise some money? What's what's the process?
1: So we were um, fortunate enough to to kick things off when the I would say at the height of the market. You know, in retrospect, back back then was the height of the market. Um, So the challenges were from our perspective weren't as much about uh, fundraising. Um, it felt like um, it wouldn't be, you know, not necessarily, we didn't take that as gra- for granted, uh, but we, we felt like it was more for us to make sure that we can achieve the level of conviction that we wanted to get to um, in identifying a problem that is uh, interesting enough for the world, interesting enough for us personally, and that we're able to, to solve. Um, so we've uh, decided to take a few months um, and just focus on that. Just try to talk to as many organizations as possible, leverage as many connections as we could to make sure that that is indeed the case. That kind of the the broader space that we had in mind, which is around protecting data in the cloud, is in fact something that organizations are struggling with. That we are curious around solving, and that we think we know how can we how to how to address it. Um, and then then once we realized uh, that th- that is indeed the case, that those three things overlap. Uh, that's where we decided to to start coding and and uh, raise funds. We we did some you know very small proof of concepts in the process, but it was more around again making sure that we the way we think this could be addressed makes sense, um, and less around a prototype at that stage. Um, so that that was how we spent the first four or five months um, of our journey. Uh, throughout that time, Saf also had his uh, first kid being born uh, and I moved homes. So it was kind of easy, uh, made sense for us to kind of take that time, you know, before uh, hit, hitting the gas pedal and starting to move faster, we wanted to take that time to to lay the groundwork that we know we needed to from, again, from both a personal perspective and from a technical perspective. Uh, so once we, once we uh, did uh, uh, fundraise, we could start moving as fast as we could.
0: And was it just the two of you still at that point? Yes. Okay. So at what point did you start getting more people coming on board?
1: Um, so we had a few people. We we um, obviously as you as you start this journey, there's a, a level of uh, stealthiness that you try to keep. Uh, but that being said, people who work cl- closely to us were always curious about what it is that we're going to do next. Um, as I was leaving Palo Alto Networks, as staff was leaving Microsoft, uh, some people were curious about what we do, what we're going to do. Um, and for the the folks that were, we were closer with. Uh, we shared a bit of what it is that we're going to do and we had a couple of uh, people that told us you know let us know we'll be there once once uh you start uh, hiring um so as soon as we uh, raised funds we we started bringing in the first uh the first team members um, and in the first couple of months we decided to be very deliberate around hiring uh a small but very strong team of engineers to be able to start building the infrastructure for what is now uh, a broader platform. So there's a lot that we do that can be, I, I wouldn't say it's not repeatable, but kind of from a structural perspective, seems very similar to one another. So we decided to build that infrastructure first and then bring the rest of the team on board later on.
0: And looking at from the outside, it would seem to me that in, in Tel Aviv or in Israel, it must be quite tough to keep it stealthy because yeah, you know, it seems like everyone's from the same spot. Everyone came from IDF or 8200 and y'all know each other. It must be tough to keep uh, keep under wraps.
1: Yes, that's uh that's definitely the case. I think one of the, you know, the the Israeli ecosystem is very is very tight and everyone knows everyone. Everyone um has a friend in. Um it's lots of fun, but it also creates some challenges around whether or not you want to keep something a bit quieter or do something without everyone knowing about it. Uh so uh, during the time of uh, I, I call the, that initial process we did uh validation we were fending off VCs that try to uh figure out what it is that we do um and obviously try to be uh quieter to to at least delay any any competition that would would come up because we knew competition would would come up. Um I I wouldn't say we did uh, an amazing job. <laughs> um there's there's always this balance you need to strike between trying to keep things under the radar, as opposed to coming out with what you do. So obviously, when we talk to uh, uh, prospects or you know just security teams and organizations that we wanted to run this idea by, you obviously need to share share what it is that you do. Um, so so you need to make sure that you're not taking that to an extreme where you're trying to be so stealthy that people don't really get it what what it is that you're doing. But at the same time, not to necessarily broadcast um, what you're doing. But uh, that that being said we very, very quickly realized that there are other teams in this space that are running in parallel to us at about the same time. So despite of us, again, being very quiet about what we do for the first few months, we actually decided to come out of stealth as a company only three months after the seed investment. Um, so, you know, all the um, articles and headlines you see about this team coming from this background raised this mi- this many uh, millions of dollars. Uh, we actually decided to do, to do that uh, three months after the company was officially founded, um, before we had uh, GA product, we had a prototype back then and some design partners, but not uh, n- nothing we could sell yet. Um, and we, the, part of the reason to do that is because we wanted to make sure that um, we become synonymous with the space we're in and with the problem we're solving. So those are the trade offs that you know that we felt we need we needed to balance.
0: So I guess the danger is that other teams they come out of stealth and own the narrative around the space and you're seen as a as some sort of site player almost, right? That was the danger, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Well let's get on to Eureka. If I was a twelve year old CISO, if there's such a thing as a twelve year old CISO, how would you answer my question, what does Eureka security do?
1: So um many organizations today um, store data and cloud infrastructure. Obviously, that, uh, uh, hopefully, any CISO knows that. Even even if they're twelve, um, store store information in you know infrastructures like um, Amazon uh, Web Services and Azure and Google Cloud Platform and Snowflake and so on and so on. So almost any um, modern organization uses at least one, sometimes more, sometimes all of the of the infrastructures uh, that I mentioned um and what, part of what they use it for is to store organizational data so you know think about um your we just talked about twitter you know think about all all the uh the personal information that i have there it might be my phone number for um authentication it might be my personal information my email address and so on that is stored in some server and it's very likely for that server to actually reside in some cloud infrastructure as opposed to 20 years ago, where it was stored in a in a room um, at the bottom, you know, at the basement of, of the corporate offices. Now, the the cloud allows many great things in terms of agility, in terms of flexibility, in terms of how dynamic things are. But that nature, that very dynamic nature of the cloud, also makes uh, data flow more easily. Um, and uh, ease uh, ease of flow, you know, the how how easily data flows within the cloud environment. Again. Some some might view it as a bug, some might view it as a feature, but from a security perspective, it just means that it's much more difficult to protect. Um, So, you know, think about trying to protect water, basically, right? So you have these water reservoirs, um, and then all of a sudden something spills uh, when you try to transport water from some place to another, someone loses a bucket on the way or, you know, uh, or, uh, or spills it over. Um, so we want to make sure that when that happens, and maybe that's where the metaphor kind of breaks, it doesn't put the water at risk. You don't want them to get into a location to the wrong ends, to be um, accessible to anyone from outside of the organization, because, and kind of going back, stepping away from the metaphor back to what we do, because it's, it's your data. Um, and uh, as much as data can fuel the organization, the organization and the business, losing track of it and not uh, protecting it well can also impact the organization's security, reputation. Um, they can, can find themselves in compliance um, and defined. So the motivation to protect data is definitely there. The risks with using the cloud um, for data storage and for the movement of data are now becoming more predominant.
0: So, if I look at this whole space, Liat, I mean, it's the ultimate list of four letter acronyms. You got CWPP, you got CNAP, you got Kim, you got CSPM, DSP. I don't know, keep going. You barely run out of uh, different options out there. Where Where does Eureka fit into that whole ecosystem?
1: So the, the, I think the problem with um, the problem with all the acronyms you mentioned is that they usually focus on a vertical, right? Take CSPM for an example. That focuses on cloud. Uh, take um, uh, endpoint security. You know that's the space where I came from. That's that focuses on endpoints. So you have this focus that is based on the infrastructure. Uh, but what is lacking today is trying is is the uh, to provide organizations the ability to focus on data. And data can reside in public cloud, it can reside in data warehouses, it can reside in data lakes or databases as a service. Um, And there's no holistic approach uh, that exists today, no tool that allows that approach where organizations can manage how data actually needs to be managed, how data needs to be protected, as opposed to how this S3 bucket needs to be configured. Um, And when you're trying to find all the data or even ask yourself, um, do I have any sensitive data that is accessible to someone outside of this very specific team in my organization? You need to now actually translate that question into the variety of controls and configurations you have in that variety of technologies and try to answer each of each and every one of those separately, and then combine that back to get the answer you actually wanted to. What we're helping organizations do is have this holistic uh, view of all their data assets, um, and be able to ask data-centric questions and apply data-centric policies on that data, regardless of the underlying infrastructure.
0: So, I don't know. It might seem a little bit of a strange question, but uh, why would an organization care about that? Right? If I if I hear you're right, they're protecting everything that data sits on. Um, is there regulations they need to care about? Is is the policies mostly about data or is it? Policy telling more about infrastructure. I'm trying to understand what's the big thing for them.: Yeah, so,
1: so first of all, you know they, uh, the, the term they protect everything data sits on, uh, we see organizations time and time again leveraging great cloud security tools um, in, in, in the way they should be leveraged using best practices, having zero alerts and still have data at risk. Um, and the reason for that is twofold. Um, so from a breach perspective, from a uh, data risk perspective, uh, you can have data at risk, even if the asset itself, if the technology is well protected or well configured. Um, so take you know just ve- a very simple example. Take uh, over-permissive credentials, over-permissive access to data. Uh, you can have the S3 bucket be well configured to be um, you know, n- not publicly accessible. So you can't blame anyone for accidentally keep leaving the door open for anyone to get into. But you now have all those people in the organization have access to this data and that data might be sensitive. Um, so that could be abused by, you know, either purposefully or or by mistake by a malicious actor in the organization. Um, and data can find itself in, in environments that you're not usually investing as many efforts in protecting. So you might have this, you know, dev environment, a QA environment that the cloud security team doesn't even care about, but then someone copies data, they test out, you know, they re- they reproduce a bug they just had in production and they accidentally leave the data there. So those are all things that can happen um, even though uh, you have all the data well protected. So that's from a breach perspective. Um, and the second motivation that is now increasing is the regulatory motivation. Um, and that's where Almost every industry that stores a sensitive data needs to comply with regulations and and uh, and compliance criteria that are sometimes specific to the um, to the specific type of data to the industry they're in. Sometimes specific to the geography they operate in. So, for any credit card related information, any payment related information, you have regulations like PCI DSS. Uh, for health information, you have HIPAA. Uh, so those are two types of industry-specific regulations. And then uh, the, probably the most common uh, geographical regulation is GDPR uh, that the EU came came up with about eight years, eight years ago uh, that regulates how how personal information of European citizens uh, needed to be protected, secured, encrypted, who should have access into, and so on. Um, so if even if the breach motivation is not high enough, Um, organizations might actually be fined or, you know, in the extreme cases, even be uh, denied from operating in specific geographies if they don't comply with these types of
0: regulations. Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying about the the risk mitigation side. I remember years ago I worked with an SE who was really good about explaining this. It's slightly different because it wasn't necessarily Clyde, but he would say if you think about even something like data on your phone, you know, whatever you do, you have a document or a record or something like that. Think about all the places that will go, will go into the cloud somewhere because it's part of some some SaaS app. It will go into your Dropbox. It might go onto your laptop. So your laptop might get backed up somewhere internally to the organization. Before you know it, that one piece of data through, through you do nothing ends up in like eight or ten different places. And I often you're going kind to of view data as something that, you know, I think one, one school of thought is, oh, you corral it, you try and contain it. I don't think that's ever worked in the last 25 years of data security. So just recognizing it's going to happen and say, well, let's try and figure out, you know, how we protect it and control access to it, where it goes, seems a much more agile way to do it rather than uh, worrying about every last place it goes and trying to secure each of those.
1: And and just think about organizations today, right? If you take five, maybe 10 years back, AI and ML were kind of buzzwords that maybe the most progressive, most uh forward-thinking organizations started to adopt. Now you almost ha- n- don't have any organization that don't, don't doesn't use at least some level of AI and ML. Um, every app uh, you purchase through um, stores some data about your purchase history and what they can recommend you and how is it similar to other purchases. This is all ML, right? Um, and to fuel that, um, and you know, I'm not even talking about ChatGPT and other um even more advanced uh, uh evolvements in that field. But but to be able to fuel that, you need to store the data. Organizations today can't allow themselves to limit the storage and use of data within the organization. Um, and CISOs cannot be the ones saying, oh, we can't protect this. Please don't do this. Please don't move data around. You know, if 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 they'll do this, they'll find they'll find themselves in other organizations probably and not in the one they, that actually needs to do that. So as you said, they need to find a way to say, do whatever you need to do for the business to move forward. But we need to somehow understand how, do we, how we protect that very sensitive asset.
0: You have to live under a rock for the past uh, two years not to have heard about the, the success and, and the, the buzz that Wiz is getting in the wider cloud security space. How do you think about that as, as a company that's uh, perhaps a little bit uh, newer than they are and trying to you know, get your differentiation and your unfair share of attention out there? Yeah.
1: So first of all, I'm very happy for them. Uh, they are very close friends of ours, uh, with the staff uh, being personally um, involved um, in our journey. So um, I'm very happy to see their success. And I think in in many ways they paved uh, the way for other tools to be able to um, to, to use similar concepts um, and to to be accepted in other organizations. Um, and what I mean by that is that before Wiz and similar players um organizations didn't necessarily think uh, that they can do things without deploying tools on the actual infrastructure right um they 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 thought you know if we want to protect containers we need to have agents if we want to see configuration we need to, ha- to have something running within our environment um and in many ways the modern cloud protection tools helped shift that approach and helped shift that mindset into the cloud doesn't only offer the the ability to be you know, more scalable, more agile, more dynamic in how we, we leverage our infrastructure. It also allows us to protect our infrastructure in a way that wasn't possible in an on-prem environment. Um, so, so that, that has been great for us so far, right? We started the conversation like five steps forward from where other tools in, in similar spaces had to start the conversation two years ago. Um But, but and, and Wiz does what it does very well, which is protecting cloud infrastructure, protecting public cloud infrastructure um, and the assets in it. Uh, that being said, what we found is that data requires uh, both um, a different approach in the depth um, and in the breadth that we look at. So I'll start from the breadth first, just because it's easier to, to kind of to understand very simple examples like Snowflake and Databricks already help you understand that protecting data in most organizations can't be done just by protecting public cloud. Um, So so from a breadth perspective, um, if you want to be protecting data, you have to be wherever data is found. Um, And if you want to protect the infrastructure in which data is stored, that goes beyond just public cloud. From a, a depth perspective, and I think that's something that uh, folks that aren't coming from this space are some, sometimes struggling to understand is that protecting data is a data problem. Um, you know, we talked about all these regulations. We talked about, uh, uh, over permissive access to data and so on to be able to even understand if you have an issue, if you have a gap, if you have a violation and to be able to understand how to mitigate that risk, you have to understand the data itself. Um, just one example that we've been talking to with a, a healthcare. Uh, provider, not recently, was around HIPAA. So just to give you some context, um, your personal information, if it comes into the organization uh, from a medical prescription that you have, uh, that is considered HIPAA-regulated information, even your name. But if it came through your um, registration to a website, that is just PII. It has uh, some regulations around it, but not as restrictive as HIPAA. So understanding where the data came from, where the data originated, is critical for organizations to be able to comply with HIPAA. Um, and that is not an infrastructure problem. It doesn't matter how well you, you protect your AWS environment, or your Azure environment, it doesn't matter if you're able to limit access to all your SG buckets, um, you still won't be able to, to comply with HIPAA if you don't know where that uh, sensitive information originated from. So being able to understand the data and the context of the data, what is the data, where did it, where, did it, where did it come from, and then to complement that with a good understanding of how is it managed, where is it being accessed from, who is it being accessed by, which parts of the data were accessed, um, is critical to be able to actually protect the data itself and not just the, the uh, container, uh, figuratively, uh, not the cloud container, uh, in which it, it is found.
0: You know, it's interesting, if, uh, if protecting data was was simple and straightforward, we'd all be doing it already before now, right? But even in the on-prem world, actually protecting the data itself is actually quite hard to do because of the things that you mentioned. Uh, so it presents an interesting challenge to, to lots of people. At the end of the day, I often think that uh, you know how many how many laws are there around the world about uh, notifying the public about breaches uh, that do with the vulnerabilities and misconfigurations? Well, zero. <laughs> how many how many laws are there about breaches about what data gets out? Well, lots. Right. So data is what matters at the end of the day. Let's get to know a bit more about Juliet. Uh, I've got thirty-five questions. I'm not going to ask you thirty-five questions. I'm going to ask you to pick three numbers randomly between one and thirty-five, and I'll read out the corresponding question.
1: Let's go with uh, four, ten, and nineteen.
0: Four. What's the scariest animal?
1: Oof, mosquito. I guess that's the, that's the right answer for that. Is that? A, <laughs> I feel like an, a, a test. Um yeah no I don't know I, I I don't get scared with a lot of animals. I don't like bugs, but I'm guessing like you know the normal amount of not liking bugs. Um, I used to dive with sharks, so I don't find them very scary. I guess not. Um, but I really hate mosquitoes.
0: Do you get a lot of mosquitoes in Tel Aviv? Uh,
1: we do, especially summertime when it's very humid. And for some reason, my husband and daughter don't get st- stung at all. And it's like I'm their mosquito net. It's like every time we go somewhere, I have all these bites, and they're like, oh, "What are you talking about? It's all fine." <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> all right, number ten, uh, most used app on your phone.
1: Um, definitely Twitter. Probably too used. Um, my me- my email app is is up there with them. Um, and then from time to time, my uh, the, the um, variety of airline apps that I have uh, would be very used as well.
0: Yeah, I bet. I, I actually took Twitter off my phone a few months back. It was
1: probably a smart move. Gosh. Yeah, it also became very bad. Like, I don't know.
0: Well, that was the thing for me. One is I I, I defaulted it too mu- way too much. And then secondly, you get in there and it's just like, God, there's a lot of people talking about a lot of, you know, I don't know, bad takes on things and bad things going on. I thought, I don't need that in my life, really. Yes. So now I just restrict myself to desktop, which means I, I only dip in like once or twice a day and quickly, very quickly move off it.
1: So so for me, it's kind of the opposite. I only do that when I have like five minutes, like in the elevator or waiting for the bus or something. Um, I very rarely just sit on the couch at home and, and watch Twitter, but, uh, or read Twitter. Um, but yeah, it happens more than
0: I would have wanted. What was the last number you gave me? uh 19 19 what's your favorite vacation destination
1: um i don't know if i have like one place um i um me and my family really like hiking so we actually try to go to different destinations to do that uh, most recently we spent about 10 days in bulgaria um hiking the mountains and you know um just just vis- visiting um uh, it it i have a four year old so obviously hiking is it's it it took a hit the uh, um how how busy or how intense the hikes we do are, but we're getting her there she'll she'll get there
0: we had one of those uh backpacks for kids that that you put on to go hiking with the girls when they were young
1: so we're we're at this at this um you know awkward stage where she's too heavy to carry around you know she's four so it's not but she's she's uh, she she can't walk like for for three hours straight. So we're at that stage, uh, but she's, she's doing really well. So we're, we're getting her there.
0: And how did you pick Bulgaria as the last place to go?
1: Um, I don't know. It was kind of, we wanted something that was close by. Again, uh, four-year-olds. So flying, we didn't want it t- too long of a flight. Um, also taking time off is not does not come easy these days. So we wanted to make sure that every day we spend away, we spend away from uh, home and away from work. Is well uh well used we heard great things about Bulgaria and about the nature there and just the people and food and everything was was true so it was a lot of fun
0: yeah my sister she actually spent uh, quite a few years uh, living there you know kind of on and off she was based out of London would go there and she she ran um uh I guess accounts where the you know, big it firms have big data centers call centers your know, development centers there and she would run all the HR and recruiting for them for a while, she loved it. She spent many, many months, uh, months and years there. I said, good, "Good people," is what she said.
1: Yeah, I traveled to lots of places for work, but never Bulgaria just for just for travel. Yeah. So I don't know. It doesn't. There's not much of overlap between those no. two types of trips.
0: But let's uh, let's turn this around a little bit. I'm, I'm intrigued to know more about your go to market. Uh, tell us about your sales team right now, Liat.
1: So we have our, uh, our go-to-market team, uh, excluding me, <laughs> is uh, four people, even though I do include myself most of the time. Uh, we have two folks on the marketing side and two on the sales side. Um, three out of the four, I didn't mention this in the beginning, but I am based, the, the company is based out of Israel. You know, you talked about the Israeli ecosystem. Um, and then uh, uh, three out of those four are based in the U.S., which is our
0: primary uh, market. How did you know it was the right time to hire that first person on the go-to-market side?
1: So our first person on the go-to-market side was our marketing leader. Um we've uh we found that, you know, there's there's so much you can do in terms of um especially in, in a market as crowded as ours, you know, not just the data security market itself, but also making making sense out of the uh, all the tools and all the capabilities and all the the companies that focus on protecting, you know, the cloud. Um we realized very early on that the combination of that and our ability to um, not just gain more interest, but also to actually reach out and be more um, more focused on that outbound motion requires a dedication, which is where we started looking for someone like Manny to lead uh, the marketing efforts. Um, and obviously, you know, when you think about our stage, we are still a seed stage company. Uh, those efforts are, are, are already look very different from what I know, you know, from bigger organizations. But are also going to look very different over time, over time. So it requires that specific dedication around what it means to lead marketing for an organization at our stage. A lot of that is defining this category, defining the space, finding the right words, right terminology to how we talk about this, both publicly, but also as we are uh, starting to work with, with prospects and potential customers. Um, so that's where we, we realized, you know, we need someone who, who knows how to do this and can help us. Um, f- find our path in that
0: journey, and then you moved on to hiring a couple of people in sales. Then it sounds like.
1: So what I like about the the rest of the go to market team um, outside of uh, outside of our marketing leader, who we uh, who we who we purposefully you know sought out um, and looked for, is that the rest of the go to market team we built was um, all, I would say almost a part opportunistic. Um, and what I mean by that is that uh, as opposed to finding or opening the you know the right. Position and starting and and finding the right people to fill it, we um, we found we just found great people that we knew we wanted to work with, and we realized that uh, great people is much more important um, than the right timing. So we just brought them on, Um, and that goes to both uh, Ellie, Stan, and Kelly. All three of them joined in that order uh, to the team from personal introductions, from um, from many our marketing leader recommending some of them. So it was really around once you, once you identify great people you know you want to work with, might not be the best timing, but you still want to bring them on.
0: So when you were starting to bring them on and making the decision to do that and, you know, planning for it, was there something that concerned you most or the things that kind of occupied your mind to make sure it was that it was going to be successful?
1: So I think it's a, it's a combination of three things. So the first one is... Um, do do they have the qualities that complement what we need at that moment? Um, I probably it probably comes through uh, even today. Um, but I tend to be somewhat technical. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed. Um, but and and uh, and really just having folks around me in the conversation that help us focus on on the relationship, on the outcome, uh, and not just as I get excited, just dive into the tech um, is really something that I was looking for. To make sure, and I think that every team is is a puzzle, right? Uh, It's all different parts. No, no part looks exactly like the other, but the combination of all those parts create creates that great picture. Um, So what I was looking for, uh, for most, is is make sure that uh, those pieces, those new pieces in the puzzle, help us complete to uh, an even better picture. Um, So that that was the first uh, first part around it. Uh, The second part is: Do they have what we need today to succeed? Um so you know I've worked with great sales leaders um at Pulse Networks for example that are amazing at leading uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of business a year um and you know leading international teams I don't know how well they would perform with uh, a low budget low resources uh hands-on seed stage company right so uh, whether if it was looking at their current track record and and seeing some some um indications for the, f- that they can succeed um, or just being very open with them and talking about what it means to succeed um, in this uh, in this environment. Uh, so that was the first the second thing. Um, and then the the third thing which is specifically unique for for that part of the team um, is uh, whether or not um, how well they would perform today, but can they grow with us um, as as the company changes because you know at this stage, it really does change every quarter. every quarter it's like a, it's like a different company um and it's not just about you know it's 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 about being able to do that it's about wanting to do that uh, right there there needs to be some passion around it and not just being afraid of changes um and um and the, do they have the flexibility to switch from one mode to the other um and that is of course you know in addition to um uh, what we what we look for for every employee especially at this stage which is still 20 employees total um is um, you know, being a great team player, being very hands on—we, we, uh, no one shies away from any any part of of the work. Um, so all of those are just being added
0: uh, on top of those functions. Was there a moment, as you brought them on, that you thought this is actually going to work out? <laughs> You know, there's all that apprehension when you bring new people into the mix. Like you, you think you made the right decision. You hope you have, but until you, people actually start working together, you're not quite sure. Was there a moment that you're like, "Yeah, actually, this is this is going to be okay"?
1: Yeah, there were there were various moments. I think you know, every time, every now and again, in a in a customer conversation, they 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 say something. I was like, "Wow, I would never, you know, I I I'd never think about asking that. That's amazing." Or they're able to identify as I was talking, they're able to identify some emotion or some movement in um, how the the other side of the conversation reacted um they they helped me start even even initiate processes that i sometimes wouldn't wouldn't have thought about but even if i had i m- might have thought they were too early for us like they they i think the best teams are the ones that challenge you to go outside of your comfort zone but in a way that kind of makes sense right it's not just about oh we should do all these crazy things but really, to be able to to think outside of what I would do um, if it was just me, um, so I I find myself kind of finding those uh, those moments uh, with them very very frequently, and I think I'm very I'm very lucky to uh, to say that. Um, but yes, it's uh, it's quite a team we've built ourselves.
0: That's great. Uh, let's flip things around a little bit here, Liat. Uh, you got a sense of the business that I have and what I do. Is there a question for me you want me to think about or address that uh, may be pertinent to you right now?
1: Yeah, I think what what uh, I'm most curious about is what um, what actions or what you know what what is it that um, CEOs and and security leader and uh, sorry and sales leaders at this stage um, can do that are not necessarily traits, right? It's we we're, we are uh, we are who we are, but what it is that uh, Founders, CEOs, security, sales leaders. I keep talking about security leaders. You see where my mind's at. Uh, sales leaders can do um, to 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 get better, right? What it is that what, what learnings or what um, type of of characteristics we should we should adopt um, to be able to become better partners to our customers, to better understand their needs, and to be able to um, work together. I think that's that's the end.
0: Yeah, just as you were talking there, I was jotting a few things down here. Um, I think one thing is the idea of immersing uh, yourself as an individual um, and the team in the world that uh, that we're in. I think too often the the temptation is to say, "Look, I've got a lot to do here. You know, I've, I'm wearing five hats. Um, let me just focus on what I know is going to have a high impact right now." Right, whereas if we take the time to say, well, look, there's there's other companies, there's, there's partners, there's organizations, there's you know associations, there's all there's a whole bunch of things out there that if I go and immerse myself uh, in in those worlds, then uh, I get to learn, I get to um, adapt, I you know I'll, I'll influence how I come to work and what I do. Um, I think it takes a little bit of, um, an effort to say, I going to, I know it's going to be difficult, but I'm going to go do that, whatever that might be. I know in the U S we have things like ISSA. There's always conferences going on where if you show up not to find people to pitch to, but to figure out and learn and, 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 and understand, then you're going to be a much more empathetic and understanding person when you talk to prospects, right? So that that's one thing. Um, the other thing is that, uh, I think, you know, of all the big advances in sales tech in the last 10 years, you know, when I, I was thinking like 15 years ago, there was no sales tech, right? It was Salesforce and that was about it. Uh, these days, the marketscape is like a 2,000 companies. But I think the one thing that I think has probably the biggest impact, especially at early stage, is some of the conversation intelligence tools with, you know, common ones are course and Gong. So I think people, when they hear about them, think that's really for coaching a sales team. We don't have twenty five people in sales. Let's wait till we get a much bigger team before we do that. And in my mind, that's a mistake, right I, I think that uh, you know if you think about what's happening at an early stage company, a lot of it is experimentation and trying things out and, and seeing you know let's try this way to describe what we do let's Let's answer this question this way, and trying to be aware of all that, learn and understand and appreciate the reactions just on a live call is really hard to do. Uh, very few people can do that, but wouldn't it be good if you had to go, if you're able to go back and listen through and see, okay, I, well, a I didn't ask ask the question very well, so I could improve that. B the, the, the person that I asked, it, they didn't really understand what I was asking them. So I need to figure out a slightly different way to do that. But when I said this, they leaned in and started asking me questions. Right. And it's that sort of awareness to to understand of the, the dynamics, I think, which is very powerful. And I think the other side of these tools is that, uh, You know, you imagine you fast forward a year or two, fast forward a year or two, you've got 25 people in sales, you've got a whole bunch of customers. And then that one company you talked to in February 2023 comes back and says, hey, we're ready for you now. Right. Wouldn't it be good if you go back and listen to the three calls you had with them in February 2023, rather than relying on the notes from the salesperson or the the SE or whoever it was from a time that maybe they don't exist. Maybe that people have left the company. Right. You don't have the record it's just so powerful when you can go back and say, well, I remember what, we've, what we noted was that you said this, this, and this, and you had this initiative. How did that work out? You know, what worked, what didn't work? And you just show that you, you care about them, right? So I don't know. I, I think these are the things that uh, as you approach them with the right learning mindset can have a big impact on your ability as a team or an individual to actually show up and, and empathize and understand with prospects. I don't know if that's the type of thing you were meaning, but that was what came to my mind as you as you asked.
1: No, it it makes a lot of sense, and I think um, back when I was at Palo Networks, I, I I had this notion, and I don't know if it was a Palo thing or anything, or just my my own thing. That sales and product management, there's obviously a lot of working together, but in a lot of ways, their relationship with the customer is almost opposite. Sales are is all about selling; product is about more. You know, you, you even avoid promising something just for a sale because you want to make sure you're taking into account uh, a broader set of customers and not just that specific use case and so on. Um, and I feel like t- what I'm learning in the last year and a half is that there's more in, in that than I thought. There's more in being empathetic to the customer needs and understanding the customer problem and working together to address it as opposed to, you know, I have this, this thing here. Do you want to buy it? Um, and, and I, I find that, uh, you were talking about the course calls and as you were saying that, I thought it's not just beneficial for, for our, our sales and our go-to-market team. Even our product managers get a lot from these, you know, as you show, show, um, a specific demo of the product or a capability, you ask them about something that works or doesn't work, you, you, your ability to, um, analyze their reaction and the way you phrase the question and what it is that they saw in a live conversation, um is really limited. so so the ability to kind of go back and better understand what happened um, is is great, not just for the the go to market side of the organization.
0: That's such a good point. I mean imagine in cloud security, things are changing rapidly, right? And what you thought people wanted six months ago is not what they want now, and it's going to change in six months again. Wouldn't it be good if you could say, well, here are four snippets from calls where people ask for the same feature? that we've never heard people ask for before, and you just package it up and send it to the PM and say, there you go. What else do you want me to ask to understand better? Or do you want to join this next call? Things like that. that collaboration, I think, is, is, is priceless. Exactly. Well, Liat, I really enjoyed the conversation today. If someone wants to keep going and, and get in touch and, and explore opportunities or partnerships or becoming a customer, what's the best way to do that?
1: Uh, so the best way is reach out via LinkedIn. My uh, inbox is open, so I'm more than happy to continue the conversation.
0: That's great. Well, listen, I wish you all the best. Are you going to be at RSA this year? Of course.
1: I wouldn't be a security vendor otherwise.
0: <laughs> so I look forward to catching up with you at RSA and for the rest of 2023 and twenty four. Well, once again, I really enjoyed that conversation with Liat. Uh, Eureka seemed to have a lot going on with some unique things that they're doing and their approach around data. I had three takeaways for myself. The first one was that uh, they very thoughtfully hired their marketing leader first and they were realizing in the process of going out to do their customer discovery that other teams are working on the same sort of area. They didn't want them to own the narrative around this subcategory inside cloud security. So they decided that coming out of stealth and doing it in a way that helped them get more than their fair share of the the buzz and the noise in the market was gonna help them in the long-term. I thought that was really interesting how they approached that. The second thing was, this whole idea of differentiation around uh, protecting data itself. Now, you know, I first sold a data protection product in 1998. So, I don't know, part of my heart and my my soul in in cybersecurity goes way back to then and, you know, the importance of being able to do it. But I learned along the way it's incredibly difficult to do, right? You got to balance a whole bunch of things to be able to do it well. So the idea that they are coming to market in this space, thinking about data, how to do it effectively, It it can be, it will be so powerful uh, if the whole data security in the cloud space really uh, comes to fruition and maturity so that uh, lots of customers get the benefit of doing it. Uh, It's so impactful when you protect the data itself as opposed to all the things around about it. And then thirdly, our discussion towards the end there about the learning to be done, right? At this early stage, it is all about learning. It is all about uh, trying things, experimenting, Thinking about different ways to approach people, the types of ICPs that you might have. All that is, is you know, at the very least is somewhat fuzzy uh, and, you know, better ones where you've got a little bit of clarity, but still you got to experiment and learn and then keep doing that as you're going through the scale-up process. I love how we well, got yeah, the team. were thinking about that and the, some of the things that they are doing, keep that learning culture there. So I really enjoyed the conversation with Liat and I wish the whole Urica team every success for this year and beyond. It would mean a lot to me and to the continued growth of the show if you'd help get the word out. So how do you do that easily? There are two ways. Firstly, just simply send a link to a friend. Send a link to the show, to this episode. Um, you can email it, text it, Slack it, whatever works for you and is easy for you. The second way is to leave a super quick rating. And sometimes that can seem complicated. So I've made it as easy for you as I can. You simply have to go to ratethispodcast.com slash cyber. That's ratethispodcast.com slash cyber and it explains exactly how to do it. Either of these ways will take you less than 30 seconds to do, and it will mean the world to me. So thank you.